Welcome to the Campus Preacher Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode four, Freddy Cat Christianity, or Courageous Christianity, and the New Hegemony. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand. Hoping okay, down to business. I got my wild cherry diet Pepsi, and uh, I got my blackjack gum, and I got that feeling. Welcome to the Campus Preacher Podcast. I'm Keith Darrell. This is episode four. And we're going to be discussing uh, Freddy Cat Christianity or Courageous Christianity and the New Hegemony. If you picked up on my reference about the Wild Cherry Diet Pepsi and the Blackjack Gum, uh, that's kind of obscure. It is a reference to the movie Pump Up the Volume, which uh, took place, I think it came out in like 1991. And the main reason I remember that movie is uh, our student paper in high school had... Uh, some kids interviewed, what's your favorite movie? And I think they took one from each grade, and there was a kid who was one year older than me. He was, he, he's been worried about the fascists since eighth grade. When I was in seventh grade, he was in eighth grade. He was talking about the fascists, and so everything was the fascists. And he uh, answered the question, what's your favorite movie, was pump up the volume because it says what's wrong with the system. And uh, the basic idea was that Christian Slater played a guy who – moved to a new town, and he jimmy-rigged a radio station in, uh, in his basement, and he's able to broadcast a subversive message that was kind of turning the town upside down, and people were kind of going nuts, and kids were rebelling because of the subversion of the message and their angst living in suburbia and everything else. And so nowadays, you don't have to uh, jimmy-rig a radio station in your uh, basement or anything like that. You can just go down to Best Buy, buy a microphone, and plug it into the Internet and upload it. And so here we are, hopefully with a relatively subversive message that will turn things upside down a little bit, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, so what I want to talk about today is uh, Freddy Cat Christianity and uh, the new hegemony. And so the, the, the reason uh, I thought about this and want to talk about this is last week, well, in my podcast last week, I took the bold stand that I will uh, not be chasing ephemeral issues. And then midweek, I'm reading polling data, and now I'm talking about the poll. So the Barna Group, which basically studies religion in America and kind of breaks things out by various questions um, and or, or percentage. They break everything out through polls, and they do a lot of data. Um, one of the things they say is this in their report called Reviving Evangelism. It says this, Perhaps most tellingly, the percentage of Christians who say, I would avoid discussions about my faith if my non-Christian friend would reject me has risen from 33 to 44% in the past 25 years. So almost half of all Christians at this point that are that they've identified at least going to church once a month and consider themselves actively in the faith. That was their definition. So half of all Christians in America basically are afraid to share their faith if it means rejection by their non-believing friends. And so that's very clearly something that needs to be addressed because the dominant philosophy, so I do open-air preaching, and I'm always bumping into people that oppose open-air preaching. And believe it or not, I think this data here is kind of fascinating because I would say that many people oppose me in the name of friendship evangelism, and that looks two ways. First of all, I'm out there publicly preaching. If someone gives me a middle finger or, you know, spits at me or doesn't like me, the average thinking of the average Christian is that guy's doing it wrong. If you're just really nice like Jesus, that person wouldn't be giving him a middle finger, wouldn't be cussing or whatever it may be, and we might win to Jesus, but uh, this public preaching might turn them away. And then on the flip side, 
they think so in turn the way to avoid that is you just have meals with people and in your meals with people being really nice and nuanced and you know not aggressive at all then people kind of come to faith you win more you get more like bees with honey than vinegar or something like that so that's the that's the average operating assumption of many christians that I interact with and a few years ago i was preaching in uh, southern illinois uh carbondale and there was a big guy there opposing me he's like six two six three and he was adamant the, that you know public preaching's wrong the only way to do evangelism is through relationships and uh, as we're going back and forth a little bit um it was it was all kind of personal emotional appeal but there's a girl next to him and I asked if they knew each other and she said yes and he says yes and I asked how long they knew each other and they said four years since they're so- they're both sophomores and since their sophomore year of um uh, high school, they, they have known each other. And so as we're talking, I end up asking her, well, are you a Christian? And she says, no, I'm not. And I ask, has he ever explained the gospel to you? Has he, have you ever, has he ever called you to faith and uh, belief in Jesus Christ? And she says, no. And so I turned to him. I said, look, man, I don't care if you want to take issue with what I'm doing out here, but you can't tell me the only way to do evangelism is friendships. And you know somebody for four years, you've known her for four years, and you've never shared the gospel with her? And instead of responding to that with any substance, he lets out this big scream, ah, and he grabs um, a bag and he chucked it about 20 feet and some police come over and kind of walked him, escorted him away from the circle. And, uh, but that, you know, that, that's kind of the average mindset. When people tell me that the only way to do it, when I'm, especially when I'm preaching on campus, the way to do it is friendship. And I always ask, well, how many people do you share the gospel with? And inevitably it's almost universally zero. And so from practical experience to the polling data, I would say that we have this certain mindset that friendship's the way to do evangelism, but we're just not doing it out of fear of being rejected, out of whatever it may be. And, and so first of all, uh, first things first, let me just say fear of rejection, I think, is common. Uh, that's why Paul's always asking for prayers for boldness. That's why Jesus even says, don't fear him who could destroy your body, but fear him who could destroy body and soul in hell. Uh, so the idea that you'd be scared um, just read through Paul's letters, uh, the pastoral epistles addressing Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and a sound mind. Timothy needs to hear those things. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear what God has done for us. We need to hear that Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth so that we can go evangelize. So why can I stand in a public arena and preach the gospel? Because Jesus is Lord of wherever I'm preaching, and I'm proclaiming that, and I trust that in that proclamation, God is going to change hearts and minds. And it appears absolutely foolish to everybody there, but that is what God is going to do. And so you need to have the confidence that in some way, shape, or form, as you share the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God will change your coworkers' minds, he'll change your parents' minds, he'll change your kids' minds, he'll change your friends' minds and your family's minds and everybody around you simply by you faithfully sharing the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've mentioned the term hegemony because of this standpoint. When I went off to college, um, I, I was converted in 93. A couple years into college, I got into Reformed theology. And the part of getting into Reformed theology was I was drawn in by the majesty of God. So I'd read passages like Isaiah 6. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for 
for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And when I got a vision for that, it was the Reformed authors, it was the Reformed men that were, I felt, tying in all these pieces of the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, all these things I thought the Reformed people were tying in so well, especially in the context of broader American evangelicalism that I thought was very fluffy and very light and being governed by seeker-sensitive services. And so that is a big part of what drew me to reform theology is, is the context of seeker sensitive services. Like let's take songs with blood because that's kind of offensive. I I literally remember having a discussion with some people that they took uh, songs about blood out of their worship songs because it wasn't accessible to the unbeliever. And that sort of drove me nuts because when you'd read something like Leviticus 11 with Nadab and Abihu offering up unpleasing fire to the Lord and the Lord consuming him, uh, uh, worship is not dictated by the unbeliever. Uh, what we preach about, what we talk about, is not, in one sense, dictated by the unbeliever. And so that's what drew me into Reformed theology. So speed up a couple of years, uh, 2000, 1999, 2000, I go off to Covenant Seminary. Um, and what I kind of began to find, even in Reformed circles, was that secret sensitivity uh, dressed up in the name of incarnational ministry, dressed up in uh, cultural engagement and uh, you know, kind of more intellectual garb and even biblical garb and the- theological garb. Um, but, but at root was a de facto seeker sensitivity service. And I even remember a church planner coming in and uh, discussing uh, the need for market-tested sermons. Um, and, I just, and it just became obvious to me, and even as we talked about things like being a post-Christian culture, um, most of these men seem to be fighting scared, and it's kind of and and they were allowing the culture to dictate the terms of discussion. And so, if we, you know, a common verse would be Acts chapter seventeen that everybody talks about that Paul was, uh, you know, nuanced and culturally engaged, and he's quoting their poets. And I'm all for doing those things, but Paul also ended up saying, you know, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. And I feel like just the ba- very basic aspect of calling people to repentance is missing from Reformed theology, because everything's kind of nuanced, things are messy, things are broken, very rarely is there sin, very rarely is there uh, your time of ignorance God's overlooking, now he's calling you to repent. And so the, the point of mention all that is tying in with the idea of hegemony. Uh, that, doing ministry on college campuses, interacting with leftists, uh, you're always bumping into things like imperialism, colonialism, hegemony, and that sort of stuff. And so it might sound a little goofy to you uh, right off the cuff, but the idea of hegemony is basically that uh, there are power structures in play in a society, and we just kind of accept things, um, and we're not always, that we're not necessarily second-guessing or thinking through. There's a man by the name of uh, Paul Cavell who wrote a book called Living in the Shadow of the Cross, and Cavell's a, a secularist and a progressive, um, maybe an atheist. He's at least, uh, at least culturally, I believe he's Jewish. Uh, um, I'm not 100% sure what his uh, beliefs are, but he, he wrote, living in the shadow of the cross, and, and working from him, we can get a good working definition of hegemony, apply it a bit more broadly. But he says that the America is a Christian hegemony, and he says this, I define Christian hegemony as the everyday systematic set of Christian values, individuals, and institutions that dominate all aspects of U.S. society, 
nothing is unaffected. So in his mind, when we have traditionally talked about marriage, and we said that marriage is between a man and a woman, that is basically the influence of Christianity. It's Christian categories. Um, not, you know, it's the Christian construct, basically. When we say male-female, um, that's just a Christian construct that thinks that there is this thing called a male and there is this thing called a female. That It's just the way that Christians have constructed society. So any values that we hold sexually in the West has been uh, Christian. And so part of the sexual revolution and part of um, even Roe v. Wade and all these sorts of things are intertwined with the idea that we must overturn every aspect of the Christian culture that has existed. And so you take that and you're at a place where we are uh, now progressives, so to speak, and, and the country's shifting um, to, to more of a leftist and kind of monistic ideology and, and those things. So, so the point is, we're starting to get a new hegemony going on. Even if you've ever referred to, even if you're joking, cisgendered, uh, well, where does that concept come from? That comes from, you know, the, 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 these progressives who come up with this idea that there is no male, female, and the way we identify ourselves um, is through cis, or, you know, you can self-identify any way you want. And, and the idea of even language becomes a pretty prominent uh, discussion point of, of how power relationships are played out in society. And there's a great scene in the movie Malcolm X when Denzel Washington um, is in prison and there's a uh, Nation of Islam man that comes to him and he's trying to persuade him that, the, that he's living under the white man's hegemony and he takes him to a dictionary um, to help him show that he's internalized and he's accepted the white man's categories for how he thinks about white and how he thinks about the term black. And uh, I think the whole thing's worth listening to. And uh, so, so here it is. Did you ever look up the word black in a dictionary? For what? Did you ever study anything that wasn't part of some con? What the hell for, man? Come with me. Black, destitute of light. Devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. Foully or outrageously wicked, as black cruelty, indicating disgrace, dishonor, or culpability. And there's others. Black male, black ball, black guard. Yeah, well, there's some more, right? Let's look up white. Here. Read. White. Of the color of pure snow. Uh, reflecting all the rays of the spectrum. The opposite of black. Uh... Free from spot or blemish. Innocent. Pure. Huh. Ain't this something? Without evil intent. Harmless. Honest. Square dealing and honorable. Wait a minute. But this, this, this was written by white folks though, right? I mean, this white, white folks book? This sure ain't no black man's book. So what are we reading this one for? Because the truth is lying there. If you read behind the words, you got to take everything the white man says and use it against him. And at the end of that, the man who's uh, instructing Malcolm has a little bit of wisdom, and he says, uh, the truth is there if you get to the meaning behind the words. 
and we must take, uh, I think he says, everything that the white man says and use it against him. And so what we have, um, and, and so kind of tying in with Paul Cavell's idea and the idea of hegemony, you have uh, two ideas going on. You have the unbeliever that will take Christian ideas, love, compassion, acceptance, tolerance, those sorts of things, and then use it against us. And you know they understand that we have to overturn this. And so you have now Christians, I believe, who are accepting the unbelievers' definitions and categories. So just as in, in the progressive minds for a long time, people have accepted the Christian definition of marriage, and we've now overturned it. I'm saying Christians are now accepting the definitions of the unbeliever, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and now we need to learn to overturn it. And that's part of calling people to repentance and faith. And part of, and here's where the cultural engagement, I think, does come in, is we do have to understand the way that they're using language, and we need to learn to take every thought captive into obedience to Christ, and then from there to be... Uh, subversive with it and overturning their social order and overturning their ideas and showing why the kingdom of God is the way forward. Um, but we don't get there by accepting the world's category. So I think Paul, much more in Acts chapter 17, when he's quoting their poets and he's quoting the inscription on the altar, um, he is taking the pagan's words and using them against them, more so than it's just a passive cultural engagement. And even kind of a, the, kind of a side cultural engagement type of thing of where we've accepted uh, the world's categories. I was actually listening to somebody talk about Acts 17 not too long ago, and um, and given our context, I think it's kind of funny. He says, Paul loved the city, and you know, that's one of the rages right now is that evangelicals love the city, and if so if you're a Presbyterian and you're doing ministry in New York or uh, L.A. or Seattle or something like that, and you know it, it's always couched in terms of loving the city. Um, but Paul was provoked because of their idolatry. And if you're doing ministry in the city and you're not provoked over the idolatry, you're not following Paul in Acts 17. And so it's in that provocation that he begins to engage. So we, we I'm arguing, uh, with the idea that we're not sharing the faith with our friends out of fear of being rejected. Uh, we are internalizing uh, the new social order. We're internalizing uh, a pagan social order. We're internalizing progressive social order. And in that context, we're actually m missing and losing Christianity. And that's where we have to make the decision whether we're going to be a group of fraidy cats or we're going to have courage. Um, now, when it comes to being a fraidy cat, I think that's, uh, I think we can all understand what that is, uh, that we're all scared to share the gospel. There was a, a cartoon on around the time I was born uh, called Freddy Cat, and he says something like, kitty cats have nine lives. Um, my first eight went fast, and now I'm trying to keep the last one alive. And and he was a Freddy Cat, so he's always timid and scared because he's gonna, afraid of losing it. And so Jesus says, you know, any man who gains his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life will gain it. And so what we need to decide as Christians is, yes, we're scared. Much of the New Testament is written to people who are scared. They're being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and Paul's writing Timothy to encourage him in the faith. Paul's asking for prayers for boldness uh, because uh, I imagine he's scared. He even tells the Romans that the gospel is the power of God and salvation because you need to know that the gospel is the power of God, that if you can sit there and you can tell somebody about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then uh, you can share the gospel. And you know, even if you're not prepped for all the nuanced answers that you need to have and all that sort of stuff, um, you need to have the confidence that, you know what, I don't have all the answers, and I'm not probably not nuanced enough. Um, think of Paul in 17, again, Acts 17, where uh, they accuse him of being a cherry picker, uh, where he's just going along picking up seeds off the ground, and he's just picking up this crazy philosophy. So how nuanced was Paul in Acts chapter 17 that they would leave there saying he's a cherry picker? Um, and so we need to have the freedom and the confidence in the gospel. And so when you don't have the freedom and the confidence in the gospel, you're going to shrink back and be scared. Um, but if you are persuaded that the gospel is the power of God and salvation, then you can go into the battle and, and share freely. So the woman 
at the well uh, who Jesus revealed her sin to, and then he goes, go get your husband. You know, the, I don't have a husband. That's right, and the man you're currently with is not your husband. Then, you know, she goes back in the next chapter and tells the town everything that this man has told him about. So you can do that um, if you're not overthinking it, and if you're not scared, if you've not in, kind of swallowed the idea that you're on the wrong side of history. And so under uh, Barack Obama, I felt like every few months he was, there was some progressive thing that he was pushing and then you'd say, uh, you know, the, the, the people are going to do the wrong side of history. They're on the wrong side of history. And, uh, and so many, you know, I think many Christians begin to believe that and think that. And so they begin to shrink back. Whereas, you know, they're on the wrong side of history. And we need the confidence of Psalm 2 that Jesus, you know, he's on his throne and we're going to nations. You rulers, you kings, be warned, be wise. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. We're the ones with all power and authority. Even if it doesn't look like we have culture, power, and authority. You're the one when you're sitting there in the living room with friends and family. You can tell them about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if you have the Spirit of God, uh, in Acts chapter 1, it says, you will receive power to be my witnesses. If you have the Spirit of God, you can share the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with your family and with your friends, and God will be pleased to take out their heart of stones and give them a heart of flesh. Their salvation is not dependent upon you, and so you should be free. Not free to be a jerk, free to love, be free to be gracious, free to invite them in, free to buy the next meal, whatever it is, but you need to be absolutely, totally free and confident in your gospel that you can sit there and share in some way, shape, or form the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ that has all authority, and they owe their allegiance to him, and they can, uh, and from there, God will change their hearts, because God is pleased for the foolishness of what is preached to change men's hearts. So you need to uh, be convicted of that, you need to be persuaded of that and have the absolute confidence that Jesus has all authority under heaven and earth. And so we are in a Christian hegemony, and we should not give ground. So, thank you for listening to this episode of the Campus Christian Podcast. Hope to see you next week. Join the Faith, Laugh, Feast Network, and go out boldly. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom, he runs on his way, there's no time to...